Hello, outdoor adventurers. Dylan Tomina is a Patagonia fly fishing ambassador, writer, father, conservation advocate, and author whose newest book is titled Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. Dylan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. I, it's a great podcast, so thank you. I appreciate that. We've had to reschedule this a couple of times. I'm glad we're finally getting to do it, though. So uh, for people who are maybe unfamiliar, what was your goal with this collection of essays and short stories? Um, you know, part of it, I think, was um, I, I feel like as I was putting it all together that it's kind of a long thank you note to all the people that have come into my life um, through fishing um, and and shared times around fishing with friends and family and, you know, people that are important in my life. So um, I think that was part of the motivation. And um, and then part of it was to just show, um, you know, there's two kind of timelines in the book. And one of them is a chronological order of, of the stories that I've written. And in that, what I hope that people see is that, um, you know, the evolution, like how a person who's passionate about something, how their focus, what they're thinking about, how they think about that activity changes over time. Uh, and so that's part of it. And then interspersed in the book, there are these little snapshots or vignettes of, you know, a lifetime so far of, of fishing experiences that kind of uh, trace a much longer arc. Uh, so they're kind of both in there and hopefully it'll make sense. So you are, no pun intended here, completely hooked on fishing, specifically fly <laughs> fishing, and even more specific than that, a love for pursuit of steelhead trout. What do you love so much about fly fishing, Dylan? Wow, everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um, you know, I think I started fishing when I was a kid because I was so obsessed with and enthralled with fish that fishing was sort of the best way I could think of to get closer to the fish, to see them up close and to be able to touch them and hold them and that sort of thing. Um, and then as I got older, that part has continued for sure. Like I still get totally excited when I bring a fish to hand and I can look at, you know, the colors and the spots and the size and all that sort of thing on a given fish. Um, but also there's, you know, a still evolving and growing kind of culture around fishing and, um, you know, most of the best people I know are fishermen. And so, um, you know, it's been a really nice way to surround myself with, with really kind and thoughtful and good people. So it turns out to be a really good judge of character then too, huh? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, we have our dirt bags too, but yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, I, I think there's something about the process of fishing, uh, that requires, I don't know, these leaps of faith that what you're doing will result in, in actually a fish biting your fly or whatever, that it, it does attract kind of a certain kind of person that I think tends to think deeply about things. And, um, you know, and then the whole other side of it is there's this really beautiful history of, uh, of fly fishing literature, you know, all the way back from Isaac Walton through, you know, Tom McGuane now, who I consider, you know, probably the best nonfiction writer in America, but the fact that he's written quite a bit about fish has really added to, you know, there's so many, I mean, you know, Norman McLean with uh, uh, River Runs Through It and Roderick Haig Brown. And, you know, there's just been this long tradition of 
beautiful fly fishing books that fill up my time when I'm not fishing and that, you know, I can go back to and read over and over again. And so, um, yeah, there's just a lot of aspects of it. I think that all kind of come together in something that fits my outlook really well. Makes sense. It seems like, uh, the art is very meditative while you are uh, obviously consciously having to do something. You are standing there with your thoughts, attempting to catch these fish. And what is it that makes steelhead so special? Well, the, the first part of your question is super interesting to me because um, often when I'm talking to non-anglers, there's a perception like, oh, fly fishing, that's so relaxing and meditative and calming. And I'll tell you this, when I'm fishing, um, my brain is going like 100 miles an hour. You know, really? do, I have, do I have the right fly? Am I in the right spot? Are the water conditions good? I mean, it's like um, it's like this heightened awareness, you know, of I you know, some people have talked about it as being kind of like the predator instinct, right? Like all your, your thoughts and your, your processes of, you know, sensory input and all that stuff is, is at a heightened level. So I think that's part of it. And part of it, I'm just kind of an obsessive lunatic. And, and I think that, you know, that my brain turns probably more than, than most people who fish. So I think that's one one piece of that. Well, and honestly, then, I'm probably making the mistake of thinking of it like the act of just normal fishing, like taking your son to a pond and fishing where it, <laughs> it is much more involved in that, obviously. So it's, it's not going to be as, as contemplative, I guess. Yeah. And well, I'm just talking about my own perspective. I'm sure there are people that relax when they're fishing, but the beauty of having that level of obsession is really to me is that it crowds out all the other doubts and thoughts and things that plague modern life, you know, work things or kid things or family, like any of the financial thing, all those things go, I mean, you know, cause the focus becomes so sharp that in a way, I guess it's relaxing because you're not um, thinking about all the normal day-to-day -day things that, that people think about. So in some ways I think that's right. Um, and then the second part of your question about steelhead fishing, um, steelhead fishing is, you know, it's the only fishing that isn't really, you're not visually seeing the fish or the rise of the fish. And so there's something about it that attracts kind of the deepest lunatics, I guess, in that you're, you know, there's long periods of time between fish, uh, more so now because, you know, the steelhead are not um, at the best population that they should be. Um, but that's part of the appeal too, I think is just that catching one on a swung fly is, is, um, is difficult. And so when it does happen, you go from hours of kind of methodically casting and swinging your fly and stepping down and casting, you do this kind of very methodical kind of thing. And, and then all of a sudden out of what seems pretty measured and, and serene, you know, a three foot long bolt of chrome grabs your fly and tries to go back to the ocean and it's like all hell breaks loose. And so there's a, um, you know, this huge surge of, a, of adrenaline when you get the grab that, um, you know, I think is hard to replace. And you're a catch and release guy also, meaning that uh, you're never catching these fish with the intent of eating them. Is that how you've always been with things? And if not, what is it that changed your mind with regards to this? Uh, you know, I've kind of come full circle on that. I started out as a kid that went and caught trout out of the local creek and stuck a stick through them and roasted them over a little twig fire, you know, and that was sort of part of the fun of it. 
to being strictly catch and release. Uh, and now, you know, I do um, quite a bit of catch and kill salmon fishing, you know, and where the resources allow, I think, um, uh, I think it's good for fishermen to, you know, if it, if it won't have a real negative impact on the fish population, I think it's really healthy to, to participate in the food chain that way. Um, now with steelhead and in a lot of the trout fisheries today, um, there's simply too much pressure for everybody to take one home and eat it. And so in those places, I think as a management tool, it's just necessary. You have fished all over the world, West Coast, East Coast, Japan, the Arctic, down in Argentina as well. And as you pointed out, the Argentines drink their morning yerba mate tea oh. out of dried goat scrotums. You partook <laughs> in this custom as a visitor. Just how was it, Dylan? You had to bring that up, Trey, like <laughs> that of all the things in the book. <laughs> I'm a big dried goat scrotum guy. <laughs> um no, I, I, I think most of the mate is drunk out of these gourds, you know, um, but some of the more hardcore gauchos um, cover the gourd with like this tan skin from the scrotum of a, of a goat. And I don't know, I don't know what the appeal is or why exactly that happens, but it seems like it's kind of a fun joke to play on the visitor that they're like, here, drink this. And then you drink it and they then then they tell you what you're drinking from. And it's real funny to some of the people there. So um, it might be just sort of a tourist gag. I don't know. How did it taste? <laughs> like goat strip? No. Um, <laughs> a little nutty. You know, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. No. Um, you know, mate to me, I always tell people it tastes like like lawn clippings, only really bitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a good so question. there's that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be a lifelong devotee of, of, of mate in general and out of goat scrotums in particular. But, um, you know, when in Argentina, you got to kind of go with the flow. So <laughs> that's all understandable. One of, if not the biggest fish you've ever hooked was a 40 and a half inch by 23 inch steelhead. Just how much of a fight was that for you? Oh, God, I was it was insane. I mean, that fish took almost all my line. It jumped five times as high as your head and ran down into a chute where I couldn't, it was so heavy. I couldn't pull it back up the chute without breaking the line. And it was kind of holding there. And we only landed the fish because my buddy jumped into like chest deep water and scooped it up and climbed back up onto the shore, you know, before we released it. So it was, that was, that was an epic fish with a truly epic battle. Was it, as big, bigger, or maybe a little bit smaller than you expected based on the fight? You know, we had it on long enough, you know, and it's sort of a teamwork thing. So I'm running downstream and the fish is peeling line out and jumping. And by that time, both my buddy and I knew that it was a really big fish, but I don't, most of the time, I think when, when you don't really realize how big it is until it's like actually up close. And when he lifted it up out of the water and then we set it down in the shallows to kind of look at it for a second. And, and we were both, I mean, that's a really, really big fish for steelhead. So it was, um, you know, the gravity of the moment was certainly there. What is the Skycomish river and why is this such an important body of water for you, Dylan? Skycomish for a lot of years was my home river. I learned it better than, um, you know, any other body of water that I fished. I actually, I moved to Seattle 
um, because the Skykomish is a big, beautiful river, only about 40 minutes from downtown Seattle. So I could fish it on a daily basis. Uh, it historically had an incredibly robust run of really big steelhead in the spring. And, um, and the water there is really conducive to fly fishing for steelhead. It has big, broad gravel bars and riffles. And, um, and so to me, it was kind of like home for a lot of years. And it's significant now because um, in 2001, they closed down that fishery because the fish were becoming so scarce that um, even a catch and release fishery was deemed like too, um, too dangerous to mess around with even the last of that population. Um, and, you know, it was heartbreaking then and it's heartbreaking to me now because here we are 20 plus years later and it still hasn't reopened. Why did the steelhead population dwindle so much in that river? I think, you know, I mean, it's in some ways, it's sort of the death of a thousand cuts. You know, there was development happening in that watershed with a lot of, um, you know, toxic runoff from shopping mall uh, parking lots and brake dust from cars. Um, you know, there was some habitat degradation from logging. There was there was a bunch of different things. I think the primary limiting factor on the Skykomish, though, um, was that they ran a really, really large hatchery program there. And the hatchery genetics, you know, they're basically domestic fish that end up um, <clears throat> mating with the wild fish and the genetics, you know, I think a lot of the research shows that if a wild fish and a hatchery fish spawn together, the return rate of their offspring is cut by, you know, 30, 40, some people even say 50% in just the first generation. And then it gets worse from there. Uh, and we had such an intensive hatchery program there that, um, that I think that they were, it was like a, a de-evolution or a devolving of the, of the, the health of that run. That's crazy that the DNA changes so quickly in literally just a generation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, hatchery fish have evolved to survive spawning and rearing in concrete troughs and really tight masses. They don't do very well in the wild, but enough, they put so many out, you know, millions of baby steelhead get put out into the ocean from the or into the river from the hatchery that some of them do come back and those ones that spawn with the wild fish immediately start to degrade the genetics and then it's compounded season after season. And so um, the wild genetics start to get weaker and rarer and thinner and, and, uh, and eventually you end up with a situation where there's just hardly any fish. I would imagine it's the aquatic equivalent of jamming a thousand chickens into a pen where they really don't have the, room to move around and to uh, operate as freely as, as these creatures are supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you take that analogy a step for farther, if you took those factory raised chickens and put them out in the wild, <laughs> they wouldn't last very long. Right. And then if you somehow mix 50% of those genetics with a wild, I don't know, what's the equivalent a pheasant or something, their offspring would be 50% degraded from the genetics, you know, from this, you know, from an animal that was born to, to live in captivity versus an animal that was evolved to live in the wild. And so you run into these just really kind of catastrophic genetic problems. Hmm. 
And it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, we've spent billions of dollars on hatchery programs throughout the United States um, because intuitively you think if we put more fish out there, there'll be more fish to catch when in fact the opposite happens, that you end up with less fish. Unfortunately, the hatcheries alone probably make this question a pretty obvious answer, but is the federal government helping with conservation efforts in any substantive ways? <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded question. I think, um, you know, it waxes and wanes based on the administration and the political party that's in power and all that sort of thing. Um, the federal and the state governments fund the hatcheries for the most part, and that has resulted in kind of catastrophic failure of a lot of the wild fish populations, which incidentally happened for free. <laughs> you know, we're spending billions of dollars to degrade something that on its own would cost us nothing. Mm -hmm. um, but there have also been federal, you know, federal dam removals. Um, there's been, you know, federal changes in um, logging in watersheds, you know, and so I think you know, there's been some good and kind of a lot of bad. And, um, but we have to sort of celebrate the positive stuff when we can. You mentioned dam removals as something that has been helpful. Are there any other viable solutions that currently exist to help the steelhead population rebound? You know, I mean, to me, I think knowing that the limiting factor in a lot of the rivers is hatchery problems. You know, I think that would be a pretty simple, it seems simple. There's a lot of politics involved, but if you just stop putting the billions of dollars into hatcheries, I think we'd see much better populations of wild fish. I think that's one way that, you know, I'm hopeful we could go. It doesn't seem like the political will is there, but that would be really helpful. I think, um, you know, the federal government can step in around harvest issues, you know, that we over harvest a lot of salmon and steelhead. Uh, and so that that could be a beneficial thing. And then the other things I talked about earlier, like changing regulations around logging has helped. Um, you know, it's more of a state level government thing, but uh, removing barriers, like, you know, a lot of these streams have culverts so that they can cross under roads but the salmon can't or steelhead or salmon can't jump up into those culverts because there's too much flow. So, you know, there's a lot of money being spent now in removing culverts um, or making them more passable to migrating fish. So, you know, I mean, I think there are some bright spots. Hmm. I feel like when I'm reading your writing, Dylan, that I detect at least a little bit of a Hunter S. Thompson influence. Are you a fan, a fan of Hunter S.? And uh, who are some of your other literary influences that impact how you write? I am a fan. I'm a fan, more a fan of, of Hunter Thompson's writing than his life, <laughs> probably. It's understandable. <laughs> Me too. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, for a gonzo sort of like, you know, experiential reporting, like he's, he's a pretty original, you know, and I, I really admire his work. Um, you know, I think Tom McGuane has had a huge impact on me. Um, you know, he's actually been a really valuable mentor in my writing. Uh, and, um, you know, he writes these sentences that are often so beautiful and so well constructed that, um, you know, I know some of them like just by heart and I've written them down on pieces of paper. And, and I, it always leaves me wondering like how it is that his toolbox has the same 26 letters as me. And, you know, he comes up with these just really 
beautiful, beautiful sentence structure and deep, strong thinking. So um, McGuane's been big. Um, you know, Jim Harrison, I think, you know, Jim Harrison is a great example of, of a, a, a writer who can go lateral, you know, that there's these digressions into these into bigger things that kind of sprout out from the main, the main point of a story that I really enjoy. Um, in fishing writing, I think, you know, uh, Ted Leeson is uh, his book, The Habit of Rivers kind of crowned him as the philosopher king of fly fishing. And, and he's really this amazingly deep thinker. Um, I, I really like the writing of, um, of Russell Chatham, the painter. Um, he's really famous as a painter. Hmm. Uh, but he did, especially back in the 70s, he wrote um, fishing and hunting stories that were like remarkably groundbreaking at the time and still really hold up today. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on. I mean, the, the writers that I admire is the list is longer than my arm. Hmm. And uh, you wrote a lot in this book, or I guess in the stories that were compiled for this book about the hell that you put yourself and occasionally even friends and family members through in pursuit of this obsession. That includes some miserable conditions at times. But I'm curious, though, what do the perfect fly fishing conditions look like for you? Well, part of being a steelhead fisherman is that you just somehow have to have some kind of masochistic tendencies. Like you gotta be a, you gotta be a glutton for punishment. Cause a lot of times the weather's really bad. Um, you know, it, it, it can be miserable physically. Um, but the perfect conditions for me for steelhead fishing is, um, water's emerald green. It rained two or three days ago and the water's dropping now. And it's just going from being too muddy to fish to being real clear. So I like about three feet of visibility and water dropping rather than rising. And I'd like to be in a spot that has uh, rocks about the size of basketballs on the bottom and the water's maybe four feet deep and kind of choppy on top. Hmm. And that, that, that it doesn't, it just sounds like the average person would just be looking at the river, but that, that makes the blood pump if you're a steelhead fisherman. All right. Dylan Tomina is a Patagonia fly fishing ambassador, writer, father, conservation advocate, and author whose newest book is titled Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Dylan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thanks, Trey. I, like I said, it's awesome to be on this podcast. I've listened to a bunch of your interviews, really enjoyed them and learned a lot from them. So, um, so thanks for making me a part of it. I really appreciate it. I love getting to speak with you Patagonia guys, Dylan. Y'all have, uh, y'all get to live a life that I'm very jealous of here in the Austin, Texas suburbs. All right. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll be able to talk again sometime soon. My pleasure, Dylan. Take care. All right. You too. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.